welcome to Everyday Theology, where we don't tell you what to believe or why to believe it, but rather explore our Christian beliefs and why they matter for us in relation to God, to creation, and to others. My name is Aaron Ross. Welcome back to Everyday Theology. I have the pleasure this week to uh, speak with an an old friend, I guess maybe not that you're old, but we've been friends for a while. EDM aged friend. Yep, there you go. Almost almost to midlife friend. It's <laughs> um, a really depressing thought, actually. <laughs> no, we're not there. Um, but it's my friend Landon. Um, and Landon and I, we met at a church that we both kind of volunteered and did uh, a lot of work at Landon, much more so than I, because it was in Orlando. I would drive over from another city, uh, spent a lot of time at that church, met a lot of great people, you know, and, and over time, as I kind of moved on and moved to uh, a different state and Landon has moved on in his own way, which we'll talk about, uh, we've kept up. We kind of sometimes message each other about things spirituality wise. And sometimes I can get into a really deep place that really shouldn't be Facebook messenger, but that's what it is. Um, and so then I thought, you know what, perfect timing to bring Landon on. He's, he has just la- uh, launched a podcast with Ryan Adams, uh, called meaning in the middle, right? Correct. Yes. Perfect. Um, and so, and it's about a pastor and someone who has deconstructed and left the faith and talking about all things to deal with kind of spirituality and kind of finding some meaning in those two middle places. So Landon, thanks so much for uh, being on here. Hopefully I didn't massacre your podcast with my <laughs> terrible statement on it, but okay. if you wouldn't mind uh, letting people get to know a little bit about you. Um, I mean, we'll talk about your story, but you know, anything you want to kind of prep with now. Yeah, sure. Um, first of all, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Um, hello to your 1 million listeners. Oh gosh. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I live in Orlando, Florida. Um, I work as a podcast producer. Um, I don't know how much intro information you want before I get into. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's kind of hard since this one is really about our stories. Right. And I already joked with Landon that he could actually make this podcast sound good. Uh, where I can't. So, you know, um, yeah. So there's that you've got a couple kids, right? Married a couple of kids living the dream. Uh, yeah, I have two kids. My daughter Rose is two and my son Grayson is seven months old. So my house is a wild place. So getting a little more sleep than me right now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Grayson's actually got a cold. So the last couple oh. of months have been tough, but yeah, no. That's the maybe maybe, the, maybe uh, I am getting more sleep. Yeah. Blow. Um, yeah. So today what we're going to talk about is kind of that. And in some sense, um, talking about, you know, in a, in a brief manner, but just kind of Landon's story of deconstruction, as he would say, he's gone through deconstruction and, and actually some of mine too. So we can interplay off of kind of our own deconstructions, where they've landed, why they've landed there, how we've kind of come to come to talk about them and even in our conversations together, how it's kind of created a pretty, I would, I would feel like congenial conversations that we have, right. Never Absolutely. trying to prove each other wrong in any sense, just 
kind of saying, here's how we view things. But um, real quick, before we get into those stories, though, I think deconstruction is such a buzzword. I mean, you know, a couple months ago, Matt Chandler, uh, Matt Chandler, like made this statement about deconstruction. And of course, it came from a highly reformed viewpoint that basically, you know, can't exist in a world that someone loved Jesus and then left right. loving Jesus. And yeah. Uh, basically made the claim that if you deconstructed and became an atheist, well, you were never really saved to begin with. It's just such a blase, junk, yeah. kind of reformed theological point about, about uh, predeterminism and what God determines for humanity. Um, and of course, he had to kind of clarify that just because you're having doubts doesn't mean you're deconstructing because now he's struggling with that word because he can't have that word mean uh, leaving the faith and at the same time having some doubts. And so maybe, maybe Landon, even before you kind of give your story, even just tell the listeners what you think of when you hear the word deconstruction and why you do. And maybe I'll give a little bit about the way that I think about deconstruction, just so we have some kind of groundwork here laid and we talk about that idea. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, so for me in simple terms, it's kind of asking sequential questions about the faith that you are either part of or the one that you inherited and i think how that process what triggers that process and sort of how it gets executed depends on the tradition you come from depends on you as a person depends on kind of the environment that you're in when you are deconstructing um but i think it's for a lot of people it feels like a part of growing up especially if those of us kind of grew up in the church mm -hmm. like you get to a point where you ask yourself why do i believe these things or why do we believe these things and try to dig down and find the roots of some of these ideas and um like we'll get to sometimes that leads you farther in sometimes it leads you farther out um what i've found is oftentimes people are coming into that with the intention of finding convincing answers and like continuing to press in. So it's actually mm -hmm. more of, I think for a lot of people, it starts actually as an advocacy for their faith yeah, and an attempt to defend it in some regard. And yeah, like you said, it's become a bit trendy, a bit of a buzzword and you have these, you know, Christian talking heads giving their own little spin <laughs> on it, right. which is always yeah. kind of silly, but um but yeah, I think generally people go in with good, good intentions. And then um, I guess if I were to say, like, try to make a distinction, not in Chandler's defense or anything, between doubts and deconstruction might be that I think deconstruct, saying that I am deconstructing seems to be a recognition, or at least a posture in which you feel like you're questioning the whole thing, even mm -hmm. if you're focusing on pieces um, rather than having some kind of specific theological question that you're unsure about. Yeah. Yeah. You know, honestly, I would think of it a lot the same and, and I do think the same, right. One of the kind of oddities of deconstruction, which is why any kind of claim, any one particular claim deconstruction is X, Y, or Z 
often fails because deconstruction can be as varied as it is the people who are deconstructing. Yeah, sure. Right. But they typically have some of those same elements. And I think some of the ones that you expressed, right? Oftentimes it's coming out of a desire for certainty where the certainty one had no longer fits or no longer works or that that certainty is starting to actually crumble, right? The, the claims made by the church or the claims made within their tradition no longer suffice in light of new information that they've been given, whether that's reason or logical information or experiential information. And they go, this does not equal what I've been taught. And it becomes worse when they ask the question again and they get the same answer, right? And we go, no, 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 there's some new information here. And yet the answer is still parroted back, right? Yeah. Well, it has to be this. It can't be anything other. And that that can lead people in, in various different ways, right? It can lead people to just give up uh, in terms of asking questions, right? Like, well, I'm just, you know what? forget it. I'm just not going to, I'm just happy. This is fine. I don't need to worry about it. I'm just going to keep going this way. It leads people to, to kind of take seriously. And, and the thing about deconstruction, at least the way that I would try to define it is it always is taking seriously faith. And that doesn't necessarily mean it's always going to end with someone still having faith. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Be- because there's that seriousness of you don't ask these kind of questions. If you don't actually care about the thing that you're questioning. Right. Right. Like you've got to have some amount, some modicum of going, I really care to know about X, Y, and Z about God or X, Y, and Z about my theology. It it really matters to me that I come up with a good answer that for some, those answers, even the ones they search for can no longer suffice. And for others, they do, they help kind of reframe and repicture things that, that uh, in terms of kind of a Christian theological position, create a better spirituality or a more holistic spirituality. Right. And, and those are kind of, again, it's as varied as there are people, how the approaches happen, how people respond to those approaches, how other people try to help them engage. And I'm sure you've got a lot of your story probably with how people have tried to uh, deal quote unquote with you amongst your deconstruction, right. In the same way I have as well, but I, I hope that's helpful at least for the listeners a little bit on, what we mean when we mean that, not in the Matt Chandler, you just, you're not a Christian if you do this. So it's done. Although the answer might, like you said, in the very odd defense of him might end in that path, but not quite so oversimplistically as he would want to make it right. Yeah, totally. Um, So Landon, with that kind of said, kind of give us that story. What was that deconstruction for you when you talked about deconstructing or you are at where you are now? What did deconstruction happen? What happened in you? And how did it lead you to where you are? Yeah, cool. Um, so I'll give a little background context just for me growing up because I think that's really important um, for this story. So I grew up in Texas. Um, my parents were full-time missionaries with an organization known as Youth with a Mission. Um, some people may be familiar with. And basically from day one, I was totally steeped in all things Christianity. Um, I lived on the campus of that particular uh, YWAM location and all my friends, all their parents were missionaries. You know, I did 
all the summer camps and church events. And oh yeah. Name, and mm-hmm. I, I checked all the Christian, I checked all the born and raised as a Christian boxes. Um, but what about born again, Christian boxes also born again, <laughs> yeah. um, which is a weird thing. If you grow up a Christian, you still, yeah. like, depending on your tradition, you still feel like you have to make that like every Sunday Pentecostal every yeah. Sunday. <laughs> Um, so fast forward, I move away from Texas, um, to Orlando and I think you said it well, you get new information that creates some kind of dissonance for you and you seek to resolve that by asking questions. And for me, you know, it was part of just moving away from what is really like a, evangelical Christian Mecca of some sorts in East Texas. There's a lot of like big Christian missionary mm-hmm. or um, missionary organizations that are uh, headquartered there. And uh, just a big part of the, that culture. So I think part of it was moving just away from home, being in a new environment, making new friends, finding new community. And part of it is I have just a very kind of analytical critiquing mind in general um, kind of skeptical by nature, I guess, depending, you know, some people have different connotations for that word, but uh, <laughs> I just started doing that, just asking those questions about my childhood faith. And I mean, I should say my childhood was amazing, honestly. Yeah. Grew up in an amazing community, had a wonderful childhood. I can't speak enough about just how great the people there were. Um, treated me well I have no like nothing bad to say about yeah that experience or what that's done for me which is which is odd to have to say right to clarify because I and I don't want to kind of wash over that moment too quickly just because I think it's important to recognize that so many people have again a misconception about deconstructionism is that there's it's rude like rooted in some wound Mm -hmm. or in some like deep dislike of the church you know what I mean like kind of like back in our minds because of something that happened to us and like, well, you're only deconstructing because you're mad at it. Well, that's not necessarily the case, right, right? right? Like you can have, sorry, I didn't want to interrupt, but I just thought that was a really kind of important point to make. No, I, I totally agree. It's one reason I really like talking about deconstruction in general, because I think I break that mold a little bit for people, even to the extent that not only am I like just not the bitter ex-Christian but I'm actually like, I think rather affectionately about Christianity as a, tra- a tradition and the people in it. And like you said, doing a podcast with Ryan Adams, who's a Christian pastor and one of my best friends. And I think, yeah, people don't know what exactly to do with that. And so anyway, with my story, so I, Christianity was great. So all I have to say, like, it was a lot of thumbs up for me. I was super involved in the church. Like you said, the church where you and I met, um, I, after moving to Orlando quickly got involved with worship ministry there and Mm -hmm. eventually became an elder at the church and, uh, was super involved headfirst, loved it. Everything taking all the right Christian steps, right. Taking again, checking all those boxes. (laughs) Um, and, in the background for these few years, I was 
kind of going down again this is a bit of my personality people aren't always this systematic but I was kind of going one by one taking like a hobby theological topic and just digging into it asking people a lot of questions trying to under kind of understand where where it came from I think realizing that the tradition I came from which may be true of sort of evangelicalism in general but specifically that strain is rather narrow in mm. some some ways and to your point I think there's a there's a big emphasis on certainty and so there was enough diversity in moving to Orlando even though it's like very much in my comfort zone in terms of like church culture there was enough kind of political difference from just being out of Texas there was enough uh just kind of demographic difference there's enough different variables that that certainty couldn't quite exist yeah. there and so started asking questions you know and it was like the low-hanging fruit of you know does hell exist or i don't mean low-hanging fruit in terms of like them being right uh, right <laughs> the, the common maybe the common the common is better right? yeah right. yeah um right they're not trivial questions but right um does hell exist you know young you think about like creation stories in genesis those are kind of like inflection points for um debates or whatever with in a mm -hmm. sort of evangelical circles questions about prayer and miracles um where i grew up uh it was evangelical but with a little like sprinkle of charismatic flair yeah um, that ryan likes to call charismatic light Mm, uh, I always call it Holy Spirit Plus, right? <laughs> Holy Spirit. Or, or Evangelicalism Plus, plus go. a little something else, right? Um, so I've been enough. I've been around enough of that kind of gifts of the Holy Spirit expressed in a lot of like claims about God doing things in people's lives and answering prayer. And so I just really started to dig into those things one by one. And typically, that looked like me kind of coming out of the other end with kind of a more open-handed version of whatever my theology, my theology had been before. So I wasn't, that didn't feel like a pullback from Christianity. It just felt like, yeah. it was like a shift in the Christian household, right? Like didn't feel existential. Um, and again, I was like kind of digging in because I wanted to understand it more. I wanted to kind of like get closer to it. And generally that felt like it was working well. Like I felt like I was maturing in my faith and, taking a more um, kind of open-handed Christ-like view on some certain things. And so then, if yeah, I can just pause yeah. you, just because I do have a really, I think a really important question that may come to people's minds, you know, you, you're saying, okay, maturity, you're, you're kind of getting some more certainty, but in a different way, right? Certainty with different opinions, right? And then having it more open-handed, you know, especially in that evangelical tradition or an evangelical bless or a charismatic Pentecostal tradition, you know, I feel like a lot of times the question would be asked, well, what about your relationship, right? Like if you're talking about all these other things, I feel like I'm maturing. I feel like I'm, I'm getting better at, you know, being a leader in the church or whatever it might be, you know, someone might go, well, yeah, you're just doing all the motions. What about your relationship? 
Like, did you, did you frame kind of in your mind what that would have looked like for you kind of growth wise and what you've typically been told, here's what growing in a relationship would look like, like anything you can process there. Cause I think that's an important additional piece that so many people are going to go, aha, there's my got you in your deconstruction. You didn't do that. Yeah, no, I still felt like I was, I was really trying to lean in to all of the I mean, at least initially, and I could talk about how that kind of shifts, but like I said, I was in charge of like the, I was leading the worship ministry at this church and I was leading worship a lot, loved it. It was like leaning, it's like totally still very comfortable in that space and that like kind of connection and prayer and leading other people and praying for people and talking to people about these questions that I considered to be mentors. And, you know, so it wasn't pulling back and isolating myself or just like going to find out what like some atheist thinks about it. Sometimes, right. You know? but, right. Um, yeah. And very much in sort of more of my personal space was really asking God, I think for insight and for answers, because my intention was to find the truth, even if that was uncomfortable for my kind of current faith, uh, or kind of current expression of faith, or whatever, I just like, ultimately, I had just kind of decided, like, wherever this leads, I'm, I'm like committed to this process. Right. Um, so I don't know if that totally answers your question. Yeah, I think so. So as that process continues, um, it starts to feel a little more, feel like I'm drilling down a little bit. So I'm starting to ask what feel like bigger questions about God's nature and does he or doesn't he really intervene in human affairs and questioning, like I mentioned, things like prayer and as, so I'm starting to get down to these what feel like more foundational questions about the Bible. What is it? What isn't it? You know, what, right. uh, how, how should we really posture ourselves when thinking about the Bible and engaging with it? And I think I had gone, I had loosened enough of these kind of points of certainty down this, down this line that um, at this point I was feeling like I, I had kind of pulled back and I had stepped yeah. in and I was kind of saying like, I don't know what, I don't know where this ends, but I know enough to know that like my leadership position feels dishonest or disingenuous in some way. Um, so I started kind of pulling back from some of that involvement at church, uh, still attending church, just felt like, the questions I was asking or, or kind of just the position I was in sort of needed that space. Right. A bit of that disconnect. Um, and then I end up kind of coming to an inflection point for me. So that whole thing up until this point was, you know, rather gradual. And there wasn't anything that kicked that off. Um, right. Said it wasn't, it wasn't like mistreated or, uh, you know, I didn't have like a tragedy in my life that I felt like God didn't show up for, you know, like some people have the, some, and some yeah. people have those and that doesn't, right. that doesn't at all like discount the right. instruction process that might come from it. But 
that again just wasn't my story but I got to this point where um, I felt like I had gone down the line of a lot of questions and wasn't really sure where I was at and there was this big event happening in Orlando called The Send and if you could distill the first 25 years of my life <laughs> right then, it was The Send so oh yeah couple miles away from my house it was all the worship bands I listened to growing up it was like tons of my friends from youth with a mission and that I've known from traveling around in that ministry a bunch of people were like coming to Orlando for this event it was all about as the send implies it was all about evangelism and getting out in the city and like you know empowering a new generation of young people to become missionaries so it's like this was (laughs) this is to a t totally home base for me um i was at a point where i wasn't going to go to the event but i was still like curious about it and i they were live streaming it and i put it up on my computer and was watching it and strangely and i don't know why all this sort of happened this day but i was reading this book by sam harris called letter to a christian nation mm-hmm. um which is basically his like 85 page attempted takedown of evangelical christianity right um so i'm reading this book with the send live streaming on my computer on the coffee table uh and i think in some maybe this is me filling in the blanks in retrospect but really kind of sensing this like i'm at the threshold of something i'm either gonna like step towards that or i'm gonna step towards this and there was something that kind of made sense about both of those just like being in the space at the same time and so anyway I read through the book and you know it just took a few hours and then I just put the book down and I just remember having this moment where I just sat there staring ahead staring at the wall kind of like knowing something had happened but not basically I didn't want to ask myself what I thought about it. I didn't want to, yeah. I was worried to ask myself, am I still a Christian? Right. Because um I was just afraid of the answer. And Let me, yeah, please. Yeah. I think that's a it's an interesting thing to say, right? Afraid of the answer, particularly because, you know, in whatever I'll talk about my deconstruction, there is this this sense of one of the things to be afraid of is that you're wrong. And now all of a sudden you've got this, the, the, the kind of classic apologetic cosmic bet thing happening, right. Where like, you know, it's better to kind of just play it safe and believe God and say that you love him and hold on to those things. Because what if hell is real, it's better off for you to, you know, go down that path than live however you want. And then find out that heaven was real and you're in hell. Right. So, so what was it that you were maybe afraid of uh, if you had already kind of, you know, I know from our conversations and just from in general, kind of, you had already kind of changed your perspective on hell, what you thought hell was, how kind of that worked. So what were you kind of afraid of and saying, I was afraid to yeah, ask? Yeah, that's a good question. It wasn't, as you alluded to, it wasn't a literal like existential fear regs like you said i feel like i removed some of those stakes so to speak like yeah from the equation 
but honestly it was just a big like loss for me hmm. i think christianity has been so good for me so many of my relationships so much of my life was couched in that context right was, right um supported by and boosted by and guided by that community and it's like i mean the best analogy for me is to kind of equate it to a breakup where it's like hmm. yeah we had like kind of like grown apart and we sort of maybe knew it wasn't wasn't going anywhere but right like that emotion doesn't quite hit until you say mm, is this mm -hmm. done yes this is done you know let's go separate ways and i think there's right. certain, like finality that kind of like brings that whole emotional weight down and so i think for me that's where i was it was just really counting the cost of that evolution for me you know that yeah just which connected from basically everything that i've ever known which which again i wanted you to finish that story but again i would be amiss to kind of like miss that thing again because it just kind of flies in the face of most wrong-headed kind of discussions on deconstructionism that says oh this is just like a it's a flippant thing right like it's just you you don't you didn't really care or like the you know, again, whatever his name was, Matt Chandler, like you weren't really ever a part. You weren't really ever saved. Whatever, whatever the thing is, what you just described was like a deep love for the thing, recognizing what you're losing by letting go of the thing. Yeah. Right. It's not a hate or a distrust or an anger, or a, I just want to be rid of this. So let's just push it away. But actually recognizing there is a cost to the deconstruction itself that most people, I, I think, kind of doesn't compute what what can you mean that there's a cost to something that you're ready to let go yeah um a friend of mine wrote this poem a while back and it was there was this one line and i i might butcher it now but really struck me she said like how do how do i grieve a loss i wanted mm. and in that context, I don't know if like wanted is even totally the right phrase, but it was like it is there is a paradox there yeah. of um having some like relief in some sense, but um but yeah, honestly for me it was in that moment at least was generally just difficult. And yeah, I think that that kind of defense from some of those Matt Chandlers of the world that you're choosing like the easy way out in some respect, I would just say yeah. like, for me, that was not <laughs> right. Not my experience with deconstruction that right. it was, if you wanted to get out, it would be way easier to just leave, like drawing it out. And I like, it just doesn't for me make a lot of sense. Um, yeah. And yeah so for yeah it was a big it was difficult there's this idea in cognitive science i can't remember the term but the gist is basically that you can't control what convinces you yep of something mm -hmm. and so yes you can 
you have some control and say over your posture towards ideas and how open you are to engage with different ideas and arguments, et cetera. But at some point you can get enough information from sources that you perceive to be credible enough that at some point your brain just flips a switch and says, right. Hey, I'm convinced of that thing. And that's not ultimately, at least at that kind of last step, that's not up to you. And so, yeah, for me, it, that was a weird thing to sort of have a little bit of like, and maybe that was me waiting, not wanting to ask that question. It was kind of like, I don't feel like in this moment I get to choose my answer. Hmm. So <laughs> there is this yeah. kind of inevitability of what was coming. So, yeah, it's, it's really interesting you say that because Chris and I, um, my co-host who's not here. Hi, Chris. If you even listen to this when you're not here, uh, we've talked a lot about kind of that idea in particular that our minds aren't necessarily, we don't necessarily make up our minds as much as we think that we do. Right. Like I don't, I didn't just decide one day I choose to believe this theorem based on these things and it's my choice and I can do it as much as those things happen to us because of the information, because of the posturing, because of all the different things that we do, not to say that we don't have some kind of like freedom of choice, of course, not taking that away as much as to recognize it's much more complex than just someone picking up a book and going, you know what, this idea is right. And so I'm choosing this idea end of, end of the story as if, you know, it's so mathematic. Um, how our minds work are much more complicated than simple, simple addition, right? And simple yeah. subtraction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We are definitely multi-dimensional in, in that sense. You know, we're, I know there's a lot of uh, work that's been done on that that basically says that, generally speaking, even through experiments, they see that like the rational explanation is a lot of times just like a defense or some uh, an argument for what you kind of already have arrived at, you know, like yeah. do something completely inexplicably and in a controlled environment, you know that they don't have the information to justify yeah. choice. If you ask them why they make it, they just make up this whole rational story. And it's not that they're lying and trying to like deceive anyone. It's just like, that's the brain jumps in to give you some sense of safety and security and orientation. Yeah. By saying, oh no, 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 we had a total, we had a calculated reason for doing that. Right. But yeah, there's like there's this whole web of influences and perceptions and context. And yeah, it's a it's a big old mess. <laughs> <laughs> let me let me there's so many different things that I could ask about for you in that experience. Um, and some of them I think would be really pertinent to our listeners. So I'm gonna push them. You know, it's always bad to be like, okay, you're listening to my podcast, but go listen to that one. But uh, things that different kind of things that are often kind of the common follow-ups that I know that you guys are talking about or ha are planning on talking about things like morality, right? Can you actually be a moral human person without faith as if people with faith can be not moral or, you know what I mean? Can, can, cannot help but to be moral as if like that's the kind of final equation um, and truth. Like how do we think about truth and um, and I think as people who are of faith can have varying different ways of thinking about truth and it doesn't, oh, sure. you know, doesn't necessarily disqualify faith if you don't hold to this one view, but what would you say for you 
as a person, it's done, right? So not in terms of kind of morality, not in terms of truth, not in terms of, but just kind of, again, some of the things that people, and of course, here I'm, I am, as a minister, right? As, a, as someone who is credentialed with an Episcopalian tradition, like not wanting to push people into deconstruction and then away from the faith, clearly that would be kind of ironic to me as a person, but at the same time, kind of clearing, clearing the, the table to kind of go, there's a bunch of junk on here that is just not true necessarily for all people. And we'd need to be honest with hearing those stories and, and what that's done. Right. And by that really long setup to kind of say, you know, there's this kind of thought process that often happens within Christian thinking that following Jesus, being a Christian is going to be the path to the best life, right? It's a very Joel Olstein prosperity-esque gospel type thing of saying, you can only have a good life if you've had this faith and you hold to it tight and you do everything that it says to do, then you'll live happy and you'll, you'll be blessed and you'll have all this, you know, whether it's material, immaterial things that kind of make your life good. So my question for you is, since this process has happened, what's happened with you? Like your life, how do you feel that you've flourished or not flourished, thrived or not thrived? Like, what has it been like for you kind of in comparison to that time as a person of faith? Yeah. That's a big, that's a big question. Yeah, I know. Sorry. And we don't have too much time, but trying to kind of figure out like, how do we talk about that in a, I don't know, like I said, clearing the table type of way. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, it's been honestly very positive. Um, naturally that like it creates, especially in the sort of beginning, it creates some difficulty in some relationships that have always kind of existed in that kind of shared religious space. Right. Um, and navigating that isn't always easy, but I feel like I've learned to take more ownership over myself hmm. in the sense that um, even like if I look back at my past, I think I grew up with a framework that would color things with this kind of like spiritual warfare. Oh, okay, yeah. Right. So good old Frank Peretti, right? Yeah, so if I did something generous or something good or made some kind of moral choice, like that was God like working through me and empowering me. And if I did something selfish, something destructive, that was a result of like the enemy tripping mm -hmm. me up. You know? Not that there isn't like, even in that theology, like choice built into that, but you you do play, a, you're a bit of a pawn in this. Right. Right. Cosmic battle. And now I think for me, looking back in both of those scenarios, I get to say, no, I think that was just me. Those positive things I did, those were me because that's part of who I am. And those selfish, stupid, and destructive things I did, those were also me. And I just have to own the complexity of who yeah. I am as a person. Um, and I don't kind of get that attribution card to pull right to say like mm, oh i was yeah. pushed that way or this way um and for me i that's been really interesting and kind of surprising that i feel like i have a sense of like presence that i 
didn't before and even in like an existential sense there's this kind of common trope about deconstruction or about maybe atheism kind of farther over on the scale that if there's no eternity after this then like what's the big deal right Right. yeah blah 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 um a sentiment that I've come to that I think is more common than that one is that it's actually the reverse ends up happening for some people, which is hmm. true for me, which is if this life is all we have, that makes it way more valuable. Like I understand the calculation is right. logically on both sides. Um, but for me, there was a like unexpected kind of newfound urgency yeah. about like making this count and like being present and like really leaning forward in life um you know because i did not expect to have that eternal yeah runway on the other side um that's that's a very fascinating perspective i think particularly for people who maybe have been within the christian faith for so long you know this idea especially kind of even that kind of theological biblical idea death was the last thing to be defeated right? That there is something beyond that we get to look forward to, that there is something kind of eternal um, that, that I don't want to say diminishes at all. I think it has the potential to diminish life, right? Kind of what you're saying, right? Depending on which theological position you may take, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you take that position that, you know, God's going to blow this thing up, this whole earth, it's all done. And like, we're going to get a whole new one. It's going to be better than this one. And forget this one. That thing is going to be much better than this. Then, yeah, this life really doesn't mean anything, right? It's just we wake up, we work, we eat, we sleep, we die, right? And and let's let's kind of, we go through these processes. Uh, but there are, of course, other theological positions that say this thing is the thing that matters. And this is the thing that will be forever. So let's be good with it, right? Both the creation itself and also our own lives within that creation, right? But it doesn't have that kind of sense of kind of economic scarcity, <laughs> yeah. right? Like that, that, that maybe the 80 years is the 80 years. Maybe this is it. So let's really engage with this one because this is it, right? I think it's fascinating because I don't I don't think most people who have grown up in that tradition have really experienced that. Something else that you said kind of like spurned a thought for me in the sense that, you know, I in all of my teaching um, at universities, you know, one of the questions I often have when I teach at a Christian university, I'll often kind of in kind of theological positions, we get into this kind of discussion on sin and good and evil and and these kind of things and. And, you know, inevitably there's usually one, at least one student in the room who grew up not within the faith. It's hard when you're at a Christian university, (laughs) many of those, right. Didn't grow up in the faith. Didn't really have any involvement either with the faith. Never really heard about Jesus. Never really, you know what I mean? Wasn't kind of preloaded with some of these good and bad ideas. And I started asking them questions for the class as as much as they're comfortable. and, And I go, you know, one of the things that's hard for those who grew up in the faith and, and especially the Christian tradition is that from the very beginning, we're loaded with this idea of guilt, 
or shame, right? Like I did something wrong. I'm guilty. And therefore I should have this shame and I need something to repudiate this problem in my life, right? Like I've got to have something to fix it. Like I deserve to die. Yeah. Right. But those who grew up not at all in the tradition or close to the tradition or kind of preloaded with some of those ideas, you know, oftentimes they expressed, they never thought of anything in those kind of terms or worldview. They never felt guilt for doing something wrong. They could know that they did something that maybe a parent or a guardian told them not to do, but it wasn't loaded with that guilt and that shame in the same way as if, uh, as if we kind of get within kind of that Christian tradition of teaching on those things. And that's really fascinating for a lot of people to kind of recognize and recognizing that so much of the way that we perceive a lot of these different things, heaven, hell, good, bad, kind of what you were talking about, kind of with that doing the right thing and it's God empowering and doing the wrong thing. It's Satan powered, right? Is uh, that there are other lenses that, maybe now you kind of kind of shedding off some of those things now engage and and it's almost as if speaking a different language yeah and that sense of for me i i know one language even within my own deconstruction i know one language right that's the language of christianity right and you know the same with my actual language i know english i i will never know I mean, who knows where my life will take me, but I don't think I'll ever know how to be fluent in another language to the point where I'm thinking in that language, dreaming in that language, having that language be kind of the way in which my world exists. I think it's always going to be English, right? And I can't even fathom how that is to think in a different language, to, to go about kind of dreaming in a different language. In the same way that my, me in my seat now, I can't think of how you, Landon, currently are kind of doing that with that non-Christian language, yeah, right? Yeah. Like within that worldview, because it, it's almost like it doesn't compute. I yeah. can speak the language somewhat, but I can never really fully embody what that means, right? Yeah, yeah I think it's taken an interesting... So I like, quote, deconverted a few years ago, and... I think initially after that happens, there's a natural like vacuum um, where this thing that loomed so large in your life and your perception is gone and you want to replace it with something. And I think, but it takes time that sort of like deconstruction into reconstruction idea um, for me, it's it started to take this very interesting kind of like pluralistic character where I feel like I'm now circling back in the sense of being able to say, <laughs> sorry, just saying I'm circling back and some of our Christian listeners are perking up. Um, <laughs> oh, so you're, you're saved again. Great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, I think I I feel like I can stand in the midst of religious ideas from other Christian traditions and other religions at large and pull ideas and see the good and come back to Christianity even and 
talk about the profundity of some of these ideas or you know right transformative power of like the story of jesus which i think is like super weird for people <laughs> that are <laughs> christian for people on both sides of that uh that conversation like they're both kind of made a little uncomfortable sometimes by that and i think i've come to a point where i recognize the value of religion yeah maybe the necessity and the inevitability of it um if you view religion i've kind of come to view religion as a i take this phrase from um john verveke he says an ecology of practices Hmm. that are um organized in a way to help us grow into better relationship with ourselves with others and with the world yeah and to not primarily think of religions as systems of belief because i think that's a very like western evangelical thing where the your ticket into that community and into belonging in that faith tradition is belief right right there's an emphasis on saying the sinner's prayer right because it's a statement of belief that gets you in the door yeah sometimes it's treated like a magic prayer right like a magic no exactly get out Um, of jail free card say this thing right and so i think it's it's difficult sometimes to break that frame you see some people who go from kind of a fundamentalist tradition they just become a different kind of fundamentalist right they yeah they they go into something else into a political movement or into a different religion or a different ideology and it's that same I'm completely certain. Yeah. They, they choose, they do, they believe it in the same way. And I found this kind of beauty in existing in this more pluralistic space where I'm able to engage with religion in this kind of, in treating it as something sacred to cite yeah. John, uh, John Verveke again, real quick, is he talks about the sacred as something that has inexhaustible meaning or something that has inexhaustible intelligibility. So this mm-hmm. idea that he uses the example of Plato, the um, philosopher, not the, <laughs> um, he says, I can, I can read Plato and it changes me. It, um, it evolves who I am and I go out into the world, a new man, and I experience the world in a different way and I'm changed further. And then when I come back, to plato i see something i didn't see before right always this interpretation lens is that like all idea you can't no man can step in the same river twice kind of idea right Um, and i found that whole thing really really beautiful and kind of freeing for me so anyway that's kind of some of my current posture in the midst of yeah no i think that's really fascinating and that's fascinating because in a different vein, a different way, that's a, a similarity to where I, I find myself, right? But within the, that that tradition, right? Within that faith and spirituality. Um, but deconstruction has done some of those similar things mm-hmm. with similar outcomes, but in a paralleled kind of way. And, and I think, of course, you know that because we've had some of those same conversations where, um, where I very much, of course, for me, identify as a Christian and and would argue today that I think my faith, quote unquote, my faith 
is stronger now than ever before, even as I'm less certain now than I've ever been. Right. Um, one of the, one of the things that, that me and my wife, Kristen, we, she'll ask me some questions sometimes and she'll say, you know, what do you think about this? And the, the best answer I have is to say, I don't know, right? Like I don't have the answer. If you're asking me, what are the four different positions on that one idea? Sure. I'm happy to tell you all four and I can tell you the strengths and weaknesses of them, but there are times where I go, I don't know. And I don't think I need to know, mm-hmm. right? There's, there's no sense in which that there's something there that has to happen in, in me in order for me to go, I've got the answer. I know I'm right about this. And therefore I can frame my world around this belief, right? So kind of I'll maybe, because the listeners are somewhat kind of attuned to some of the parts of my story. I've just never called it deconstruction, right? Um, and it came in kind of phases, right? Growing up in a pretty fundamentalistic kind of uh, Pentecostal tradition that is still very much today, that tradition is still very much fundamentalistic. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, most Pentecostal traditions kind of are themselves. Um, going off to kind of the same experiences, never had a bad experience with church, yeah. was never upset with it, right? Pretty much framed my whole life around, especially being a pastor's kid. You know, the door of the church was open, I was there, right? Like, even in the times where I was like, I, I don't, want to go to a Wednesday night thing. It wasn't because I didn't actually want to experience those things. It's because I just wanted to go to another place, another church that was more fun, right? Like quote unquote, um, going off to college for me, you know, having that kind of experience as that dumb knuckle skull head kid that goes to go, I already know all this stuff. I've already read the Bible. I've multiple times. I've I can answer it better than anyone else in the class, right? Like that arrogance. And, and that entire, there was, there was one real experience that kind of hit me in, in undergrad. And it was kind of the start of it, but it was only one experience that I can, maybe two. And I've never really processed that second one, if that's the start of kind of another thing, but and this is a really dumb experience here on this podcast. Yeah. Well, there's something I've talked about, but maybe I just never paired kind of with that like moment. Right. But this is like one of the stupidest things ever. And I, and I today still think it's dumb. Right. I was sitting in a class with someone who became a colleague of mine at the university I taught at. And it was a, a, a class on the person of Jesus. And he brought in kind of a picture of the, kind of Nat Geo, like more kind of authentic, more kind of to the time, to the ethnicity. More likely what he looked like. More likely what he looked like, right? It's a picture that's kind of very famous now. And I remember looking at that in class and going, that, that, I, that's not the Jesus I worship, right? I don't know that guy, hmm. right? And it started a, a kind of an intense period in my own kind of life of like a few weeks, just walking around going, am I saved? Do I know any of this stuff? Mm. Like, what is all this that I've been taught? Because that doesn't look like the blonde haired, brown haired, blue eyed, white Jesus that I've grown to see in all these pictures and these paintings and these things. Mm. And I never really kind of followed that because 
I, in that same kind of wanting, like being scared, like, you know, being afraid was still so afraid of this kind of ultimatum of heaven or hell that all I wanted was, I don't care about answering. I don't care about which one it is. I just want to be safe. Right. Like, and so whatever that is, I'll just take that. So sure. If that's that one, that Jesus, I'll just, and as long as I'm safe. Right. And, you know, for a, a few years, of worship music, right? It's kind of similar things, right? Kind of uh, engaging in, and this is that kind of second one. I remember after years of kind of playing and traveling and, and, and even playing worship music at like at church camps and churches and always seeing these kind of people have these experiences. And there came a point where I just became very numb to the experience. Mm. And I remember being upset with God at one point, just going, everyone else gets to feel something and I don't. Right. And I think part of that is that, you know, the kind of Christian kind of experience, what we call like a dark night of the soul, right? Like kind of like really is that, that perception of which uh, a St. John of the cross describes it, this moment in which all the experiential things, all the feelings of, of God are removed uh, as a means of kind of pushing people into the idea of the person of God or to God as God's self, not the feelings that are associated with being. And, but it really did start kind of making me start asking questions, right? Like asking questions about these experiences, asking questions, why not? Right. I had, I had a, a friend, uh, like all these things happened to me, right? Like I wasn't like you that kind of like, I've got to know, like, I've got to ask all these like probably pertinent questions about hell and, 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 and everything. They, they happened to me, like to the point of people asking me questions and then me recognizing that my answers were so insufficient mm. um, and problematically to think that I even could still today give like an answer to save them. That would be the wrong way, right? But at least some kind of way of, of giving a better answer that kind of makes more logical sense. I, I had someone ask me one time, sitting down at a even more, if it could be fundamentalist college that I went to my grad to get a grad degree with, cause I had no idea what I was doing with education when I was you know that young. And the person asked me, or the person basically said, it wasn't even a question. He said, I can never be a Christian. And, and I said, okay, well, I mean, why? Like, I, that's a pretty strong <laughs> statement, I guess. So why? And he said, I, I could just never follow a God even if that God is real, I can never follow a God who would send people to be tortured for eternity because they never actually got to know about who that God is, right? Kind of that kind of question about the unevangelized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, you know, at that point, I was so tired of the kind of like fundamental extremism that I had kind of been in, even in my kind of master's degree, that I said, you know what? that's a really good point. Like I finally kind of said, that's a good point. Mm. And I did what any master student would do. And I said, let me write a paper about this and I'll get back to you. Right. Like, <laughs> let me, let me go yeah. research. And then I'll, and that's where kind of things started to change for me in a very kind of deconstructive kind of way, because that was the first time that I had already deconstructed to some degree or just kind of read, I wouldn't even say deconstructed, but read and kind of had again, do we change our mind, change my mind, right. On kind of my perception of hell away from some 
kind of eternal physical torment. Um, so I had already kind of started to do some of that work on kind of what makes most logical sense within my theological framework. Um, but it was in that, in that kind of like questioning about the unevangelized that things started to kind of break open Mm -hmm. this kind of framework of Christian, this framework of theology really is limited to this very narrow set of people and a narrow set of ideas that really, as you said, work if you believe them and really don't work if you've got a question about them. Right. right? And so then, yeah. I would just say quickly, I think that in large part is a good diagnosis of this larger deconstruction trend, if we want to call it Mm -hmm. that movement um i think it it tends to come out of very proposition first very like kind of belief centric tradition um and i think a lot of it is just those traditions coming into inevitable contact with a more pluralistic world and like you said i grew up in this little bubble in the country of east texas right like just out in the middle of nowhere and there were not a lot of like competing narratives and all right. that built together great until there were competing narratives <laughs> and then you realize yeah. like so i just want to like double click that i think that's a that's a big part of sort of this the ecosystem we're in i think it's just like people you you start to realize as you get exposed to more people and you kind of if you can zoom out your own kind of vantage point right recognize i don't think that piece works with right. everyone and if it doesn't work with everyone then like is it true or what is it anyway yeah jump in no no i think i think that's really that's true and it reminds me of you know uh kind of the biblical scholar's name is pete ends he he had some time ago talked about kind of deconstruction and and kind of giving his story of again, still being a person of faith, but how he had to go through some very serious questioning, right? Um, and and some very hard-lined kind of reformed person, of course, ironically, a woman who I thought, thought to myself, in your tradition, you know, you aren't even allowed to do this, but somehow because you're going after someone that your tradition doesn't like, they are okay with it, right? Like kind of that conflicted yeah. reality for him, but kind of basically talked about how deconstruction only happens when you start to question the Bible and basically kind of making the claim that their tradition was better at it because their tradition almost didn't allow for questioning of what the text is, what scripture is, how to posture yourself as you meant, as you kind of said it to where Pete kind of responded in, in his own kind of post about her response to go, you know, anecdotally so, but when I kind of reflected on that same anecdote, the same thing happened to kind of, I kind of affirmed it in my own kind of life, my own experiences is that deconstruction happens more often than not like deconstruction towards out of the faith towards kind of an atheistic position happen more frequently in traditions or people who have grown up in traditions that are highly fundamentalistic and protective of their kind of ideals and beliefs. Because of that very thing, right? Once that world gets questioned, once you kind of butt up, 
and you can't help it anymore. We're in a globalistic world. I mean, we're seeing the very unfortunate things that are happening in the Ukraine because of an evil person wanting something that he shouldn't have and killing people to get what he wants, right? Like you can't get away from these experiences where you might have been able to a hundred years ago when your town was small and you knew everyone in it and you could protect it in the, in the framing and the ideas and you could keep certain books out and you could, you know, really keep this framework intact. That can't happen anymore. And the hard part for those traditions that really want that to still happen, those are the traditions that are the ones who are creating and you kind of said it, right? There's that. There's those who go from one fundamentalistic perspective, maybe about the faith, to an oddly fundamentalistic perspective about not faith, right? right? <laughs> right. And, and use the same lens, use the same argumentation, use the same kind of way of being, because there still is a need for 100% certainty one way or the other, and we're going to use those same argumentations, right? My, my proclamation of that certainty is my identity like it to belonging yeah. group yeah yeah exactly so you know that oddly enough that paper helped me again reframe it, mm-hmm. it made me re kind of refigure my understanding of what what we talk about when we talk about how god engages with people within humanity within creation and for me it was such a there became a process of just the continual kind of gradually kind of opening up of those things. Right. Again, there was no kind of crisis moment. There was no like, but with it eventually for me, kind of in that kind of deconstruction, which is probably much more gentle than some, uh, there came a, a moment that I had to kind of say to myself, if I really, really am going to actually call myself a person of faith, and if I really am going to um, to want to to frame my life around this person of Jesus, and if I really do love that person of Jesus, then I have to be willing to at least say I could be wrong, hmm. right? Because because I could not find a way to exist in a world where I had to have certainty about these things and to be able to love Christ faithfully and authentically Hmm. because those two things couldn't, couldn't compute. I had to be willing to say, I could be wrong. I could be wrong about this thing. And one of the kind of writers that really helped me along the way in that is Paul Tillich and his kind of understanding of what faith is and what faith isn't and, and, and this proclamation that doubt is inherent in faith. Like, like doubt isn't contra to faith. Doubt isn't, isn't faith gone wrong, but doubt is actually the proof that faith is what faith is because you can't have what, what he calls kind of, uh, well, there's a lot of different ways it, sometimes he's frustrating because he'll use this like 20 different things to say the same thing. Um, he, you won't have ultimate concern. You can't have concern about something that is ultimate or infinite and know it. Certainly it will always have doubt. And so for me, kind of moving through that, being able to be open to go, I could be wrong, but that doesn't actually make me push away from Christ. 
as much as it makes me love Christ more, not be more certain, not be more ready to like say, I've got all the answers. In fact, if anything, it's opened me up to go, I don't have the answers. And I'm happy to have conversations about things that may have been in my kind of traditioned upbringing off the table, right? And the, the odd test case, it's kind of hard to frame this, right? Like the hard, like what does it do within you, right? Like how does it change you? Is I've found that, that I myself am more gracious to those who need grace. Uh, at times it makes me less gracious towards those who say they have grace, right? Like I won't, de- won't deny that, but it makes me more gracious towards those who, even within my tradition, I would say, need grace. I mean, we all do within the Christian tradition, right? But it makes me more gracious uh, in that sense. Like, this is a very odd statement, and it, it may still be kind of imperialistic of me to say, right? But like, there's a sense in which I feel that those that have taken their faith so seriously to deconstruct, that there is a special grace for those people that's beyond the bounds of my understanding of grace, which is a good thing, right? Like, because it's, it's not something done haphazardly or something done just because I just want to get rid of it. So I'm just getting rid of it, but it's something done in all seriousness and all what I would say in all faithfulness, right? Even if those answers are not the conclusion that we within the church may hope for, right? And that has led me to spaces that kind of whatever this phrase may be to, to find myself, whatever kind of the, the end of all things will be and however God is going to, to work it out amongst all people, finding myself to be in a space that I go, whatever it is, I hope that everyone gets to be a part. Yeah. Right. Like, and someone's like, oh, no, you're like, you know, that, that's where the Christians perk up and be like, are you a universalist? Oh, you're a heretic. There it is, right? We're finally done with this podcast. Screw that guy, <laughs> right? No, it's, it's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is there is a hope that whatever it may be, that the grace of God is beyond what I can imagine and what God can give, that the rules that I think are bound to that are not actually bound to that. And I've just misunderstood. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. How do you how do you engage with the I think I have the same question sort of in two different framings. So how do you engage with the like creedal element of Christianity or your tradition in light of that uncertainty? So from my standpoint, my kind of understanding, I think this deconstruction movement is like we said kind of a result of some of these traditions coming into inevitable contact with an increasingly pluralistic world yep and i find that it seems at least possible that what makes some of these traditions bad at adjusting or bad at um 
what makes them ill-suited to respond to that reality is the fact that a lot of them are anchored in creeds yep. of some kind, right? So you're saying like you're feeling more open and okay with saying, I don't know. What does it look like for you to participate in, I don't know how like liturgical your tradition is or anything, but inevitably you're saying <laughs> yeah, yeah, some kind of statements and readings. So I'm just right. wondering what that feels like or what that's like for you. Yeah. No, I think it's a great question. And that would maybe be a podcast for another time and, and not, not in the full, not in my answer, but kind of to fully express it oh, really, of course, of course. Um, because it really goes into like, what is truth and how do we understand and determine what truth is and in what way, but to, to make it as simple as possible. Right. I mean, typically there are, there are multiple schools of thought on, on epistemology or what is truth, but and there's two that kind of most people have probably just vague ideas. They think that they're right about it, but they're probably pretty wrong. But, you know, they've got some kind of statement that they were taught one time about it being right or wrong. And, and that's kind of modernism, right? There is objective truth and we can know it. And then there's postmodernism, which actually doesn't say that there's not objective truth, but most people kind of confuse kind of postmodernism with an idea kind of framed of relativism, that there is no objective truth, right? That, that truth is really contextual and very much only contextual. For me, when it comes to the creeds, right, we're making declarations of truth, right? We are making declarations of what we believe to be true, but I think that's the important kind of qualifier there is that I can be creedal because I am, especially as an Episcopalian, right? Like we do, we, uh, we do have a liturgy. We do go through uh, our, our prayers together in which the creed is a part, right? But it's because I've come to the recognition of maybe something of more of a middle ground of understanding truth and, and kind of the philosophy of metamodernity to, to be able to proclaim, I do truly believe there is objective truth. I think there is something called truth. And as a Christian, that thing called truth is the person of God, right? But what I can recognize about myself is that I am insufficient to fully understand truth. Hmm. So regardless of what, regardless of, of what we might want to say about truth, I can recognize about myself, I cannot fully grasp truth. I cannot know objective truth objectively. I can only come to objective truth through interpretation and in, in my subjective lens. Yeah, yeah. So even in the creed, even in the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, I mean, we think about those creed. I, you know, in, in teaching students this, these creeds, especially the Nicene Creed, about believing in God, Creator of all things, seen and unseen, right, visible or invisible, whatever created and uncreated, right, whatever version of that you you kind of recite or hold to every person, I say every person, that's a bit much, most of the church, most of the church, and even more of the evangelical church would have no clue why the third century and fourth century church thought that it was important to actually proclaim that God created all things seen and unseen. They have no clue at the importance, the meaning of that phrase, 
to those who even created the creed as a way of kind of pulling kind of disparate thoughts together and, and people who are also dealing with some very similar things. This is a huge thing called God. This person of Jesus is inexhaustible in meaning, and we're all out here trying to figure out what does that actually mean, right? And this was kind of a way of bringing those together. Say, so here are the central tenets, right? The things, but what they did then in the fourth century, how they, what they said is not the same meaning that most people would express today in the church. Now, if I hold to objective truth and say it must be held to objectively, then one of them's wrong, right? Yeah. Either the early church was wrong in their proclamation of this against Gnosticism and against the demurge and against like these things, the, the reasons why they, they not only felt it necessary, but they had to proclaim it for their theological construction about what to do with good and evil and how do we think about Jesus? How do we think about the flesh as not itself corrupt, right? Like that's kind of one of the big problems in the church is this idea that the flesh is, you know, this physical matter is wrong. That's actually an early heresy, right. right? But I don't necessarily have to say, oh, the church today, if they don't hold to this thing the same way the fourth century holds to it, then they're wrong. And this is now insufficient towards their proclamation as a Christian. Well, I think that would be wrong-headed too, because it would actually say that, well, the fourth century had it completely right, and the 21st century has it completely wrong, and we're done. Or we can recognize that there is a truth in that statement, but neither were able to fully capture that truth, particularly in a language, to try and capture something ineffable, hmm. Right. If we start to kind of recognize that there are ways in which that we can we can recognize these statements, even these creeds, and recognize that the creeds themselves weren't meant to say, this is the inexhaustible truth, but rather even in engagement with those creeds, we are interpreting those creeds, right? Again, it, it's going to open ourselves up to understand it. Well, what does that mean, right? Asking those questions without going, if it doesn't mean the thing that I always thought it meant, then I must be wrong and I'm out, yeah. right? Um, which again is that kind of like maybe misconception of what people do in deconstructionism, right? So that's longer than I meant to make as an answer and it could go a lot longer. But you know, th that's why for me, I don't have a struggle with creeds because I can recognize there's truth in the Nicene Creed. And I think there are times that I get glimpses of what that truth might be, but it's always going to be flawed as I, as a human, am an interpreter, am flawed to interpret things perfectly because I am limited in my reason and I'm limited in my experiences and I'm limited in my knowledge. There's no way. And rather than get down on myself and say, well, you're an idiot for not knowing, actually giving myself the grace to go, I don't know here's my best, here's today what I have to give is the best explanation. And I might read a book tomorrow and find out, ooh, I had some bad, had some bad ideas, right? Because this one makes more sense and it helps me better posture myself in relationality to God than what I had before. And so I think it's very didactic in that way. Uh, sorry, dialectic in that way, right? Like it, it's a very conversational thing. And 
you and I have talked about kind of, you know, intersystematic truths a little bit and kind of my ideas there and how it can be different. But that's why I don't, I don't have a problem with reciting a creed, with reading early church fathers, with listening to someone today. And rather than kind of doing the work of what some people do, which is just say yes, no, right, wrong, but to do what does that really mean? How does that affect and change me? What is that doing in my life, in my relationship with God as the posture first versus that's right or that's wrong? Yeah, it's, yeah, that's really interesting. I, that participation piece has always been hard for me. Part of it, like I said, it's a bit of just kind of my, I'm a bit in my head by nature. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And, and then kind of coming from a very propositional tradition, I find that that type of participation that doesn't hold sort of propositional certainty or whatever sort of right. top is a very foreign to me. And I, I find that the best way I've come to think about this is that and maybe this is interesting for people who are deconstructing but the the story inherent in each of these religions the mythos of the religion i think it's interesting to view that essentially as like an artistic expression of the the philosophy of that religion or an artistic Mm -hmm instantiation of that ecology of practices and I don't know if that's like some people find that (laughs) too heretical or too yeah but I I think that's an interesting way of kind of thinking about that and I think in that lens I could see how participation wouldn't necessarily need you to say like oh yes this artistic expression is true in that sort of empirical yeah. framing but yeah anyway that's super interesting <laughs> we could we could go on i could even <laughs> i mean i, I would back because i know i mean that's that's what happens when you put nerds in front of mics and yeah. you know they've read a lot and stuff because because you know even in that you know i think there's a worldview lens about what you're even saying in that moment right like the perception of what others have done in the creation of these documents or in the creation of the creeds kind of putting a lens upon them to say well this is this is what they were doing i think again fits into that same mold of going well this is what i would do anachronistically i'm pushing it onto them because this is the framework that i understand and this is the framework that you know what i mean like the hard part for me kind of in what you just said is not that i'm like oh that's radical i'm like well, I don't know if that's authentic to those people, yeah, yeah, right? Like, I don't know if that's what they were doing and it would be wrong of me to kind of say, I think that they were doing this thing. They were crafting a narrative, right? To, uh, as an art- artistic expression of something versus maybe something like the philosopher Michael Pagliani would say, which is, you know, they were speaking it out because they truly believed it as true mm-hmm. and they thought it was good for other people right? Which is, you know, kind of one of those kind of philosophical positions of, 
why do we, you know, in our conversation today, why are we actually having this conversation? Why do both of us kind of uh, want to express what we think? Because we think to some degree, what we have is good for someone else. Because it's true for me, I also hope that someone else can find that truth through my expression of it. Does that make sense? Yeah, and like, I think that our, I think we share the sentiment that the path to whatever is more true than whatever you and I both individually <laughs> think now is dialectic in nature, right? That I think yeah. through conversation, it's through engagement, it's through that participation in this process of seeking wisdom and seeking. Yeah. Um, seeking yeah if there's, if there's anything that I know to be true about me and about tomorrow is that I will probably have some different thoughts tomorrow, <laughs> right? Like yeah. I, I will be, I will be different 20, 30 years from now in my beliefs uh, than I am today. And even in our conversation, kind of this idea of what deconstruction is and how it can be, how it can look different and how, how it doesn't necessarily always be one size fit all thing. And it doesn't always lead to not faith. And it doesn't necessarily always lead to better faith either. It can sometimes lead to nothing, right? Like it can lead to just being right back where you were. But for me, I know that process is constantly shifting yeah. and it could lead me back around to some beliefs that I had when I was 18. I don't think that's the case today. It could, right. Or it could lead me to something different. And that doesn't worry me as it would have 18 year old me to go, Oof, that means I'm losing something, right. Rather that's gaining something. Right. Well, Hey, um, great to be on this journey with you. Yeah, man. And we'll keep up, right? Maybe we need to move to something other than Facebook Messenger, though, because <laughs> I don't get on it that much. And the I only time I really... This conversation and Facebook Messenger, that's more or less what we attempt. Yeah. We've got yeah can you type a response to that? <laughs> <laughs> no, not really. But here's a really haphazard try. Right, right? Yeah. Um, hey, Landon, thanks so much. Um, again, Tell everyone where they can find if they want to kind of keep going on that journey with you, with Ryan, with kind of discussing some of these things, even the way that we've discussed them, where can they find it and where should they go to look? Yeah, thanks. So um, they can check out Meaning in the Middle, uh, surface on whatever podcast app you like. And uh, yeah, we're having a lot of these conversations where we're trying to kind of navigate what does it look like to participate in this journey together despite kind of differences in, in faith and philosophy and kind of trying to exercise this dialogos, right? Trying to see, um, basically trying to model and practice the truth that we believe, which is um, that participation in that journey has very little to do with whether or not we agree on a handful of <laughs> statements. So. You mean somehow showing that we all don't have to be in our own tribes and of belief and hate each other from the other tribes? Yeah, something I mean, like that. Oh my gosh. What a thought process. Especially if we had a bit more of that. Uh, you know, you you get out of here. No, no, no. We don't want that. Just kidding. No, we do. We need that. Um, hey, Landon, thanks again so much, man. I appreciate it. And hopefully we'll have you back at some point in the future. 
would be an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks, Aaron.